Yeah, Jesus, um, be with us. Continue to be with us. Now as we, um, we consider kind of the uh, state of the church and, and we look a little bit at, at your word, God, would you continue to shape and form us and mold us into the, the community, God, that you want us and that you've called us to be. That for today, may we, may we receive all that you have for us. Open our hearts and our minds uh, to follow the leading of your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> kind of loaded. You saw the email I sent out last night. I appreciated your prayers. Um, I, I recovered from COVID, but I still have the cough. And I, it drives me crazy. So after I talk a bit, I'll probably start coughing again. But I have the cough drops here, right? Yeah. And I, we're ta- I was thinking it would, but no, it's not funny. I was going to forget it. I'm thinking about cough suppression and how I wish the mics had a cough suppression fa- uh, thing for it. But it's a play on words anyway. Um, so we're, we're, um, we're in a, a new chapter we're starting this month. Um, and we're looking at um, this idea of like narcissism in the church, specifically in leadership. Um, and we're going to start with a video. It's a video that I showed three years ago when it first came out. Um, I don't even remember what the series was that I used it in or what I was trying to get across. Maybe it was just for a laugh. Um, and it was kind of um, in the midst of uh, just the beginning, probably it was pre-COVID, in the midst of what we're experiencing now with deconstruction in the church and um, the failings of Bill Hybels and James McDonald, who are tr- two well-known um, kind of megachurch pastors from the Chicago area, uh, two men that I grew up um, knowing about and, and right next door to. Um, and, um, you know, when I, when I first saw this video we're going to watch, I laughed. I thought it was hilarious. And now when I watch it, it just makes me sad. Yeah. But anyway, so watch it. And as you watch it, I'd love, I'd love for you to think about, like, how would you describe a healthy church, you know? <laughs> I'm talking to myself weird um how would you describe a healthy church um uh, maybe it's a church that you would you know that maybe some of it's if this church maybe some of it's another church a church you'd like us to become or maybe a church if you're on vacation vacation you'd like to visit um but but anyway so watch this video and and then we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about that question how would you describe a healthy church Previously on Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional. Hey guys, how we doing? Hey, good. Doing how are good, you? Doing good, doing good. So I know you didn't love the traditional vibe of the last place, okay? Yeah. okay. But I think this church is really going to do it for you. Yeah. It takes relevance to a whole new level. Behind me, you will see Molded Clay, Jar Art, Tapestry, Canvas, Mosaic wow. Church. Mm, I love beautiful. it. Right? So you've heard of interdenominational. Mm-hmm. Right. And you've heard of non-denominational. Mm-hmm. Well, this church identifies as interdenominational. Wow. wow. That's, that's perfect for it. us. It really is. But here's the kicker. A lot of celebrities go here. Yeah. What? Jeff Foxworthy. Oh. We love him. Yep. We really do. Ben Higgins from ABC's The Bachelor. Perfect. Several Real Housewives. Ooh, and 
Usher even came here one time. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, well, follow me. Come on. Let's do it. So refreshing. Honestly, that last church was just way too traditional. It was yeah. too much. It was like we left there feeling convicted. Like, uh, ugh, right? Right. We're just, we're looking for more of a Tony Robbins type sermon. Like inspiration, like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. Yes. Oh, yes. Right? It's perfect here. We love it. It really is. We love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, you guys know a lot of contemporary pastors speak out of the Message Translation Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. Or this pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Shut we love Tumblr, up. though. This is great. Wow. A lot of emojis, a lot of abbreviations. Oh, I couldn't ask for And how many seats in here? Oh, it is 6,000 altogether. Babe, 6,000. Wow. i got to be in this worship band. That's Imagine true. me up on that jumbotron mid-guitar solo. Do you know how many Instagram likes you get? Oh, oh my gosh. We find it hard to find a church right now because I grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist. So, so like, we, we drink. Yeah, but in private. I mean, obviously, you get it. Basically, in terms of, like, worship, I think we're looking for, like, a Jesus culture type feel. Oh, I right. love them. Hillsong, obviously. Oh, obviously, Lady to the Cross? Hillsong's great. Like a Bethel minus the spontaneous yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just for me, I connect in worship more when the leader is attractive. Personally, I'm a Carrie Job guy. Oh, okay. Well, she's married. Um, so is Christian Stanfield. Wow. <laughs> so one of my personal favorite things about this church is the service times. Okay. There's an 8.30, a 10, a 1 o'clock, a 5.30, and even a 7 o'clock service. Oh, there's nothing around like 2-ish? Yeah, for us, for what we need, 2, 2.15 is best. Yeah. Uh, how many songs do they do during worship? Usually five, five and a half, depending on where the spirit leads. Oh, wow, babe, is that is that a, a lot? lot? Well, if that's too that much for you, they like... have a program here called the Worship Assist Program. Okay. So if you ever get tired during worship, an intern will come out and just hold your arms up. You just keep worshiping the King of Glory. Just like that. Wow. I love it. Oh, you can still look super spiritual. And my arms get so tired from yoga. Oh, same. I actually like this church. I think we can make it work. It was all right. I mean, it was it was good. But pers- like, I emailed the pastor and he didn't immediately respond. So uh, we're taking these vessels elsewhere. Oh man, right? Oh, that's harsh, right? And I know it's an extreme, but right. So we won't talk so much about that, the, the sarcasm in it, because there's a lot. How would you describe a healthy church? Why don't you? Um, talk with a person sitting next to you. Like you, could, you can answer this question. Use the phrase, a healthy church is a place where... And fill in the blank. Okay, So go ahead and talk with someone sitting next to you. Yeah, yeah. 
I know I've barely given you any time at all, but I'd love to hear if any one of you have thoughts on this you'd like to share. Would you? Can I have somebody um, come up and pass this around? It'd be a little easier than me doing it. No, they like how they're fighting over it. Churches where nobody wants to help. A healthy church is a place where everyone is welcome, no matter where they're at on their faith journey, even if it's not on, not currently believer. The mark of a healthy church, also, everyone being welcome, I love that, that people leaving, people who are leaving, can stand tall and be blessed um, in the same way that the people who come are. And they feel safe enough to do that, not to kind of disappear. You practicing an announcement there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Finn said a healthy church is a place where people are nice and they know you. Thank you, Finn. And I think a healthy church is where you can come and feel free to be yourself and you don't always have to put on just your best self. A healthy church puts God first over our own needs and desires. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, doesn't just, um, uh, what did I say? How did I say it? <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, like, they don't just um, build you up necessarily, but give, like, Challenges as well, not just what you want to hear. One, a healthy church is where you will know they are Christians by their love. And a, a particular manifestation of that, a healthy church is a place where people forgive and apologize rather than leave. Thank you. I think one of the things I was thinking too is a healthy church is a place where um, um, people can be vulnerable with one another, share their brokenness, not feel judged. Um, it's also a place where they know they're going to grow, right, um, in their relationship with God and others. And uh, so I, I brought this up as a place to start because um, kind of the premise of the chapter that this chapter how many of you had a chance to read the chapter on narcissism yeah so I did. I, I, I did. thank you doug <laughs> well 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 i'll bless you and honor you and <clears throat> and the main idea is that the church today is um, fairly unhealthy and then we have a low joy low love low communal identity 
community in a lot of places um, and no discipline, which creates an environment that um, looking for leadership often turns to really unhealthy narcissistic people. Um, or I would say even attracts them as well, right? Like that couple in some ways. Maybe they weren't narcissistic. They have some of the characteristics of narcissism. Um, and, um, and so it's looking at that from that perspective. But so the, the basis isn't so much. He focuses a lot on narcissism. And I'll talk a bit about that bec because that's one of his specialties. <laughs> He's a psychologist. And one of his areas of study, he wrote a whole book on it about how to be healed from narcissism. But I think for us, the key is going to be how to be a place where we don't attract narcissistic leaders and we don't create narcissistic people, right? Um, I, don't, I don't think we're going to necessarily fall into the trap um, of bringing in narcissistic leaders, although we have had leaders in this church who have narcissistic tendencies, right? Um, I mean, even I'm one of those, and I'll share a little bit about that. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way, I'm just being honest, right? So here, let's talk a little bit about narcissism first. So, you know, narcissism is pathological self-absorption and its worst phrase, you know, kind of framework. It's characterized by an inflative self-image, an addiction to uh, fant fantasy about how great you are, an unusual coolness and composure shaken only when uh, narcissistic confidence is threatened and by the tendency to take others for granted or exploit them. That's it's extreme, right? It's, of course, it's named after the mythological figure Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection. And often, commonly, it's referred to as a personality disorder. Um, so people with uh, the NPD have high self-esteem and may believe they are superior or special compared to others. Um, they, but they also have an excessive need for praise and ador adoration, um, and they react really poorly to perceived criticism. Um, narcissists also tend to exaggerate their own talents and accomplishments while downplaying those of others. They're usually preoccupied by power, success, and beauty, their own. Um, and some other traits, they may, you know, an NPD may appear similar to being confident, right? But healthy confidence and NPD are very different things. Um, so um, people who have healthy self-esteem are usually humble, while people with NPD almost never are. Right? Um, and it's a diagnosis in the DSM-5, um, the current one. It, you know, it's it, people with NPD have an inflated sense of self. They they need constantly to be admired and praised, expect special treatment um, due to their perceived superiority, exaggerate their treatments and talents, react negatively to criticism. Um, they're preoccupied with fantasies about power, success, and beauty. They take advantage of others. You have an inability or willingness to recognize the needs and feelings of other people, and they behave in an arrogant manner. They're also really, really good at destroying anybody who attacks them, right? And so we know a little bit of what that's like. Um, we've all experienced narcissism in our life in, in one form or another. Um, but again, the author is taking it from the perspective that this is, within the church, this is the result of, of an unhealthy body, right? Again, the things that he, we've been talking about, low joy, low love, low communal identity, and no discipline create an environment kind of ripe to bring in someone for that because you're looking for someone who will, you realize there's something missing, and you look to things like success, growth, right, um, platform, power, um, uh, and even relevance as the things that you, you want to seek after. That's what our church should be like. And, what do you, and how, what's the kind of person that's going to bring them in? More often than not, it's a person who thinks extremely highly of themselves, is overly confident, and in many ways narcissistic. Right? 
Um, so, yeah, anyway, so, so um, Jim Wilder defines narcissism in, a, in an interesting way. He says, a narcissist is someone who was unable to metabolize shame in a, in a relational way. They can't handle shame, i.e., and they do everything they can to avoid it. Right? They, they just when it just they can't they can't take it in. It just and so they reject it completely. Anything that feels like shame to them, even if it's a constructive criticism, even if you know if it comes, it's not good. It's not wanted, and they do anything to, to get rid of it and even destroy the source of it. Um, and the, and the shame he says is meant to be metabolized or processed with his said right. So in a healthy community. When your community is healthy, when you have the joy, the love, the communal identity, and the appropriate discipline, or I would say encouragement and exhortation, um, it's a community or a place where a person, when they make a mistake, can feel okay about being able to acknowledge it, can hear and receive criticism and constructive feedback when it comes, um, and are willing to uh, acknowledge their weakness and look for help from others, right? There is a humility in the leadership in that kind of a place. Um, so, I mean, I experience this in my, in my reality, being in ministry as I am, I get lots of opportunities to apologize. You, you probably, you know what I'm talking about, right? I think the most recent one, and this is very recent, so two, two weeks ago, you know, I came down with COVID, I was in the office on a Wednesday, and at first I thought it was seasonal allergies, but then it was like, I feel like a train wreck, there's something else going on here. So I, um, in great, with great fear, took the COVID-19 test that we had at home. And the positive result, they say, wait 15 minutes. It lasted like 15 seconds. And it showed me positive. And I was like, oh, no, this can't be so. We had another one from a different manufacturer. I tried that one off. It took about 20 seconds for that to register positive. I was like, shoot. So I, um, I informed everybody at work. My symptoms started two days ago. I've been at work two days unmasked. I'm really sorry I've exposed you to COVID. Um, I'm going to stay home this week. I followed the procedures, the guidelines from um, the CDC and InterVarsity as well. They, they called me up and they said, here's what you need to do. I followed those procedures. And technically, I was allowed to come back to work on Monday of this past week. Um, if my symptoms had pr- pretty much gone away, and they had, the only thing I had left was this cough. If I wore a mask for the rest of the week, and I social distanced. So I wore a mask, this, you know, this um, N95 version. I social distanced. I didn't get within six feet of anybody. And I even moved my computer monitor in my office into a, re, into a, like a re, remote office in the building so I wouldn't be in anyone's way. But what I failed to do was I failed to inform the staff who work at Ur- Urbana with me that I was coming in. And one of those staff's husband is um, immunocompromised, right? And she freaked out. She was really upset that I was there. And I couldn't tell because she didn't tell me. She just was like, why are you here? You know, it was one of those kinds of... Well, she went directly to our supervisor and talked to her about it. Um, And, uh, you know, after the day was done, my supervisor uh, and I were in an email conversation and she, she was like trying to be gentle and nice, asking me how, how, why it was okay for me to come back so soon. And people were surprised. So uh, you know what? I mean, technically I was fine. I didn't break any rules. But what I did was I, I, I heard a relationship, you know, because I hadn't given her to the, the consideration to how others would feel. And, and, you know, I mean, I could have just said to her, 
you know, her name is Trisha. Trisha, uh, you know, I did everything right. There's nothing wrong here. I'm coming into work. But instead, I sent her an email and I said, I'm really sorry. Uh, you know, even though I followed the rules, I'd never asked you um, if the, how would you feel about this. And I'd forgotten that your husband is immunocompromised. Please forgive me. Um, I will, I'll stay home the rest of the week. Because, you know, it was, small, it was a small inconvenience for me to work from home and a bigger inconvenience for my wife because I took her office. So thank you, Lori. Um, but you know what I mean? I think in the end, I, I actually felt bad. I felt a little guilty and ashamed about it. Now, maybe some people would say, why would you feel that? There's nothing wrong. Because I care more about that relationship than I do about being right. You know, And it was no big deal. It wasn't one of those cases where we were talking about the gospel and they didn't want me to, to, to talk about Jesus. And even then, if a person doesn't want me to tell them about Jesus, I won't. I'm respecting who they are, right? And their conscience. Um, but again, I, but I think that what's really important in a case like this is, is to be humble above all else. And yet I know people and staff that I've worked with in the past who would have said to her, I don't care what you think. You're wrong and I'm right. I followed all the rules. Um, deal with it, right? I, you know, and I could tell you their personality types and why I think they tend towards narcissism. And even they would confess that too, right? But, but the thing about narcissism is they can't handle the shame, right? They just can't deal with it. And when, they, when you shame them, or i.e., e., when you just correct them, even if you do it in a loving way, they attack you back, or they correct you, or they tell you you're wrong. I worked with a staff for years. I didn't realize he was like this until my students started to tell me. When they were struggling with something, they would come and they would explain it to him, what, was, what they were struggling with about him and his leadership. What he would do in the conversation is he would turn it back on them. He would basically tell them, it's not my fault, it's yours, right? And they would, they would end up apologizing rather than him apologizing for it. Right? And it got to the point where when this happens for so many, I, we lost our whole leadership team from this particular chapter, and I had to do an intervention with the staff because I didn't know this was going on. This is all behind closed doors. And uh, we pulled him off campus. You can't work with students, you know? I mean, he's a good staff in a lot of ways. He still works for university, but that... But that just showed there's something there amiss with your personality and your character. It's not Christ-like. It needs to be addressed. Right? Again, it's not that important to be right all the time. Right? To, be, to how you look in other people's eyes doesn't matter. It's the relationship that's more important. So, so I think about this, and I think about how the, you know, the author, he's pointing this out, and basically what he's saying is, this is the result if these things aren't in place. Right? Um, and he points out the fact that there are, you know, this is happening around churches today. A lot of churches deal with this reality. You know, um, you know there's an emphasis on the wrong things, he says. Growth, size, popularity, the message, the, t- the type of musical worship or the quality of it. Even children's ministry. Not that these things are bad, but they're not the, like, all, you know, they're not the most important thing, right? They're just part of. These are important things, but they're not the most important in the end. Um, they don't, you know, having these things really great doesn't mean you're a, you're a healthy church. You could be a big church with all those things. It'd be ter- terribly unhealthy. And there's great examples of that I'm about to share. And some of you know these already. Um, uh, you know, and, um, uh, and many churches kind of find themselves building these things, not because they're necessarily wanting to see the kingdom of God grow, because honestly, it's their, their ego is impacted. They feel bad if they're not as big as the, or bigger than the other churches down the, down the road. There's a constant comparison that goes on. And you know about this all along, and every time I think about this in myself, I'm, I'm a little, um, you know, I feel bad. 
thinking about my own struggle on campus in campus ministry, comparing InterVarsity with Chi, Chi Alpha or with um, with Crew. Always some of those ministries being bigger than us. You know, why can't we get better? What do we have to do in order to get bigger? Right? Is that really what's important? No. Why does it drive us so much? Right? Those are the kinds of things. Is it because I'm in, um, I'm feeling a bit insecure in my own personality. So here, here, what is it that drives churches? And just t- you can talk about this a little bit, give you a chance to kind of express where you're at. What is it drives churches to things like to growth or size or popularity or relevance, right? Um, over loving one another. Why don't you talk with each other about that? Okay, let's share a little bit. Adele had. Tom, he's, she's listening to Tom. So, yeah. Adele, go grab it. <laughs> then you can pass it around. Okay, well, I just said that no, sorry. Um, love is not like a quantifiable thing that you can be like, we're the most loving church around. But you can be like, you know, we have the most people or, you know, we make the most money from tithes or whatever. You know, like you, that's, and they want influence and they want power. And that's why 
churches want. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Someone else? Yeah, he can be after Susan. I think it's tied, too, to how we want to be perceived ourselves. I go to that church. You know the one. Yeah, yeah. The one with the great pastor. The one with the great worship group. Yeah. And that big church, that's the one I go to. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know the answer. So what I was saying is, I think it was three years ago, we had a bunch of students who used our space on a Tuesday night, which was the night that my house group meets. And so we joined them. We had a meal, we had some prayer and worship and fellowship. And part of my head said, why aren't these people here on Sunday mornings? Why don't they just join our church? (laughs) For crying out loud, we used to have lots of students. Why aren't they here now? But what I said was, you know, we want to make the space available because it's not our space. It's God's space for him to use. And so if you guys want to make this your space for, for this kind of activity, bless you guys, we want to make it available um, whether you come here on Sundays or not. Yeah. So that's my instinct is to say that rather than to say, well, we're not going to help you guys unless you help us back. One of the things that I, you know, first attracted me to FCBC when we did the prayer room and uh, 2005, right, was was the fact that there weren't any strings attached, that there was it was freely offered, the space was freely offered, in, with with joy, um, and you know with no expectation that it would result in anything. It did result in some great things, right? Um, but there was something about that, and I felt like, no, this is what love is. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason, um, if we go back to the book. Um, you know, that the author tends to focus on pastors is that I think, you know, um, pastors are, uh, for the most part, I don't know if you know any of the stats right now, but pastors are really struggling in general. So, I mean, they, they talk about statistically wise, more pastors are leaving the pulpit than are, are actually entering into it. And then, um, uh, you know, out of, out of every 10 um, pastors um, currently in the ministry, um, four Four of those people are seriously considering leaving for good and doing something else altogether. You know, it's a hard place to be. Why? Because I think that the dynamic has been set up of this idea of, you know, it's not it's it's not it's not okay just to, you know, do a good job with the people you have. You need to grow, right? You need to become dynamic. You need to be something. You need to be noticed and more. And that certainly doesn't feel like that's from the kingdom of God, but it's there, right? Um, so again, what, what, it, what it means to be a healthy church isn't related to necessarily, I'll say this, necessarily always what scripture says, it's related more to what's going on around them. And we're seeing the impact of that right now, right? So if you think of three key people, past huge pastors of huge megachurches that have fallen within the last 10 years, who would you name? Bill Hybels. Mark Driscoll. Anyone else? I would add James McDonald to that. So, and I'll, I'll say these right. So, they have an interesting reality, though. I have to tell you that as I name these people and I talk about them, is they are outliers. 
They're not the average pastor, right? They're outliers because these are these are three like like kind of type A entrepreneur people who who established these churches and with the help of others built them from the ground up. Right? Go ahead. I'm sorry, I know the first two, but I'm not. Harvest Bible Chapel. James You're not familiar with the, yeah Harvest Bible Chapel. Well, the main campus is in Chicago, but they have hundreds of, of satellites around the country. Yeah, at least a hundred more. Anyway, so yeah, he fell hard too. Um, anyway, um, but but so the idea, right, is is you have these people, and and as as they develop these ministries and grow them, they also insulate themselves from any uh, controversy, right? No, any critical words. Um, they become people that you really can't touch. They're all about their image. And, you know, I mean, um, like <laughs> Bill Hybels, like I kind of, we grew up in the shadow of Willow Creek. And even though I was jealous of them because I was at a little church nearby, and I saw them grow from nothing to something big. It was through one of his pastors that I really, you know, um, recommitted my life to the Lord in college. This guy ended up going back to work. He came out of Willow Creek went back to Willow Creek and became their evangelism pastor and served with them for years. And then one of my friends in the ministry who was with me, who was our worship leader, ended up becoming the worship leader at Willow Creek. You know, so I have connections there. I've known a lot of people. Even got offered a job there about ten years ago, a little more than that. And um, you know, Bill. Um, but Bill, you know, we're we're surprised when we find this out. But the reason none of this stuff was out there is because they did such a good job at hiding it, right? And one of the women that um, that brought the attack, the kind of the the charges against him, was actually the wife of my friend from college. Um, and he was just this this stuff, and you realize it. And but what's what's what? And that's bad, right? But you you know a lot of people struggle with issues of sin. But when you use your position of power in order to manipulate people, and then and then even you know equally bad when you're unwilling with all the evidence before you to even acknowledge it and to repent, and then you just say. I can't be here anymore, and you leave. And this is true of every single one of these people, Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, and James McDonald. They all did this in one way or another, whether it's mismanagement of funds, abuse of people, um, creating these kind of situations where they were, they were immune to any controversy. Bill, Bill taught this. I, I thought this was brilliant when I first heard it years ago. You know, he was talking, you know, I have a lot of people that come up to me after, my, after a service, after I preach, with, with unrequested you know, thoughts or criticism on my talks. And he said, I, what I used to do, and this is him, right? I remember this, remember correctly. I used to argue with them, but that would get nowhere. So eventually I just learned to say, well, thank you very much. Right? But here's what I, what I, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. But then as I've been, I've been preaching, I've been, but think about the problem with that. He's basically saying, I don't give a crap about what you're saying. I'm not list, willing to listen to you. You have nothing worthwhile saying to, say to me. Now, I mean, I don't, <laughs> you guys are pretty good to me, all right? There's probably a lot of times when you could say, Peter, that wasn't the best thing. And I, and, but you know, it has happened once in a while, and it's hard to receive even then, you know? But I, but I also realize, like, no, I need to be willing to hear and trust that you have something good to share that'll make a difference in my life, right? that'll help me be better, not just, not just at preaching, but, I'm just really funny. Um, I shouldn't. I shouldn't do this, but um, well, I, I use it in a in a way that makes sense. But I remember this guy who I know who would preach, and sometimes he would like make things up. Just make it up, and you could tell he's making it up. You're just making that up, you know. But rarely, I never anyone ever went to him and said, "Hey, dude, 
you know, I appreciated your message, but you just made that up. Because there's nowhere in Scripture that says anything like that, right? Where did that come from? But no one ever did that. I think it, it could have potentially helped him if someone had actually done that, right? For him. And I think that if I ever make something up, please come say, Peter, I think you just made that up. Because of the because he captivated people. Because he captivated people. Because he was hard to approach about things like that. Because you wanted to be his friend and on his good side. He had some of those narcissistic tendencies, right? Yeah. And that makes it and that makes it hard, especially when you're in awe of somebody, to say, Well, wait a minute, what's that all about? So I, I mean, because we're we're talking about narcissism, I'll just say one more thing about it. Um, that's really important. You know, I was reading an article called Finding Narcissism in the Church. It, you can find it on, on banner.org online. Um, and the, you know, the author says in the article, surely narcissists don't become pastors. Pastor's leadership requires humility at the core, right? And he said, when I think about pastoral leadership in particular, I'm drawn to Philippians 2. Right? And so am I. That's one of my favorite verses, but I think everybody should follow it, especially pastors or church leaders, right? Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to grasp, rather he made himself nothing right? by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. That's kind of the that's what we're called to be like to lower ourselves, right? With others we serve. Not not the person who lords over them, but comes underneath. Any leader needs to be the person who comes underneath and helps lift people up, right? And, and, and so he, he, was, he was in this conversation and he said, one of his colleagues pulled him aside and said, and this is a quote from this article, you know Chuck, guy's name is Chuck DeGroat. I've been in, in seminary education for 30 years, teaches at a seminary in Michigan, right? 90% of the general public doesn't like public speaking, but we get the rare few that not only enjoy being on stage, but feel really comfortable saying, this is the word of the Lord. Think about that, right? What does that take to be able to do that? Right? And, he, and when he said that, his, word, his words ring true, right? I've done, and, he, and, and I, I said, he said, I've done hundreds of psychological assessments for pastors. This guy teaches counseling at the college. And the assessments include long narratives, personality tests, and assessments of clinical disorders. And what I found is stunning. The vast majority of pastoral candidates show elevations in a category of cluster B personality disorders. I call this the narcissism family. It's a cluster of disorders that feature dramatic attention-seeking behavior along with a heavily armored personality that protects them from anything that makes them feel vulnerable. The two disorders with the most relevant results are narcissistic and hysteronic personality disorders, two close cousins in the narcissism family. There was another, um, uh, you know, this is another uh, research that was um, done in 2013 to determine the prevalence of narcissism in pastors. They surveyed 1,300 pastors. Um, now, mind you, a small, it was a small percentage, and even only 30% of them participated, but of the 30%, 30% of those were in the spectrum of narcissism. So, and let me, let me be clear. I mean, what we're talking about here isn't every, if, you, if, you're, if, you, uh, if you're on the spectrum, you're the worst of NPD, right? Everything's on a spectrum, right? Um, some have it full-blown, others have significant symptoms, and others just have the sniffles. This is another quote that I'm reading. Um, and not every confident leader is narcissistic, right? Confidence doesn't mean you know, necessarily narcissistic, right? So, um, right? Um, but, and not everyone, he says, who enjoys applause is narcissistic, but it's telling that the vast majority of pastors 
in the test in this cluster, uh, uh, you know, test in this cluster of personality features. That's pretty scary, right? When you think about it. So let me go on just a little bit. I'm not. I'm going to wrap up pretty soon. He says, "Not um, now. Why should we care? I mean, this is we're a unique church, right? We're small. We, we certainly aren't built on a, the, the character or personality or the preaching of one person, are we? I'll say that honestly. Scott's a really good speaker, but you know he's not like nationally known. Even though he did preach at Urbana, did an amazing job, right? Um, <clears throat> there are plenty of people I know." Um, some that work in university, they're absolutely amazing, and if they got their own podcast, they would be sensational, right? Um, one of my friends, Rom, is he's amazing. He's right. He's absolutely amazing. He's incredible. Every time I want to like, Rom, you preach, right? He's so good. I'd love to have, have him come here sometime. He's Catholic. This preaching is so creative and dynamic and powerful and truthful. I just love listening to him, right? Not all about preaching. Not all about preaching. That's right. That's right, right? And we do. We, we're drawn to that in our culture, right? Um, but but, but, but the, the thing I, I, we should be thinking about this as we move forward, as we ask the question, what does it mean to be a healthy church, is who do we want to become in this next season, right? Who is God calling us to? Who we've been in the past, and, and, and some of that is happening in the future as well, but what are we going to look like? And that, that's why we need to start asking this, these questions. What are we going to build the foundations of this church on, like as we go forward, because we have to keep rebuilding them. Um, what's going to be important to us? So we don't get caught up in this um, reality that the rest of a lot of the church is doing. And I don't say this is criticism, but it's true, right? Chasing after platform size, success, power, influence, or any of those things, all the wrong things, right? Making the, making the message the most important thing, or the worship the most important thing, or children's ministry the most important thing, rather than, you know, in the end, our relationship with one another and with Jesus. What, what kind of culture do we want at FCBC in the future? So, and I just want to say there are three things, and I'll, I'll do this quickly, that I, as I'm reflecting on, um, that the problem with going the narcissistic direction or really seeking success as an end result, right? Um, or, or this, the problem that we still face from time to time, comparing ourselves with other bodies in the area, right? The one is it really reflects poorly on, on Christ, a horrible witness, right? Um, it's, it's not just that we're, you know, we reflect his image, right? Um, but, but we together, especially leadership, are supposed to reflect his image. And we're, remember that thing that um, uh, Shauna talked about, that we learn by imitation, right? If you have a leader who's narcissistic, what are you going to create? A bunch of narcissistic people thinking mostly of themselves, you know? Um, and uh, so when, and, and even worse, when you see people like, Driscoll and Hybels um, and, um, um, and um, James McDonald fall, they, a lot of people get hurt and get taken out with it. And you wonder why we have this reality of deconstruction happening. It's partially because we have these really, really selfish leaders in the church that represent Jesus to the world. And for a while, they're like rock stars, and then they crash hard and they burn and people start to reconsider wanting to be a part of the church, and others even reconsider whether Jesus is for real, right? Um, you know, and then, so that's it. So not only does it reflect poorly on Christ, it, instead of growing the kingdom, right, inviting people into the kingdom, it actually chases them away. They don't want to be a part of it. They see us and they go, look, you hypocrites. We want nothing to do with you, right? Just one of the many things the church is screwing up with. 
Um, rock stars have no place in the kingdom of God. I don't know anywhere in scripture where it says, grow big, become popular, have lots of success. Do you see that in scripture? I see, I see the disciples, what do they do? They go out and they die. That was for dramatic effect. <laughs> right? They go out and they die. How many pastors do you see doing that, willing to lay their life on their line for the gospel? Right? Going out and preaching to people um, in a loving way to people that might just turn around and kill them. Right? Um, going to dangerous places. I have a friend who um, works with Samaritan's Purse who, who is uh, currently in charge of their mobile hospital that's in Ukraine. I used to work with in InterVarsity. You know. I was with his kids um, at camp a couple weeks ago at Cedar Campus when they found out his, that their dad, too, their, his two daughters, that their dad was going to Ukraine. So, and it was shortly after that that he ended up leaving to go. They called him up and said, hey, will you lead this? And he said, you bet. Same as John. He's a paramedic. Um, right? So that's different. I think, I think the other thing that I see in that, that's the third part I was just mentioning is so it's, it poorly reflects on Christ as a bad witness. It shrinks the kingdom of God. And then it's, it's, it's a cultural focus, not a God one. These things aren't godly. They, they're about the culture. This is America, right? Become big, become rich, become famous. And I, so I know, you guys know who Carl Lentz is, right? So anyway, Hillsong Church. He established Hillsong Church in New York City, right? He became very popular. And then uh, he was like this kind of edgy, you know, grungy, kind of like Tim Christ, you know, in some ways, um, and a very popular pastor. Um, and then it came out, what, like three years ago that he was having an affair with a woman. And, and then that killed his ministry in, in him. He's, so he, now he lives in Florida. His wife stayed with him. <laughs> this guy, because of the ministry he had, his, his net value is $3 million. I'm like, what? I'm sorry. What does this have to do with the kingdom of God, right? That's more like you were a rock star again that you, and you fell from grace, but you still have all that money to live on. And so what does he do now? He, he's a beach bum with his family. You know, God bless him, but there's something to miss there, right? If that's what it means, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And, I, and you know what the non-Christians, I look at that and they go like hypocrites, right? Call yourself Christian and say you care about the poor, say you want to make a difference in the world, you just care about yourself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. And you're right. And it's the... You're right. And that's, the, and that's, the, that's what the, I think the author is getting at. When you have an unhealthy system, an unhealthy church that doesn't have healthy things in it, that's, it, it tends to focus on the wrong things, and it does this. It creates idols. That's a great, great way to put that, Lori. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I think about, um, even years ago, we were invited on campus to get together and to do a big uh, outreach. This was probably 12 years ago with a ministry that's out of the Twin Cities. Good ministry. I like the people a lot. I don't like their model. They were going to pull all the ministries together on campus and do this big outreach. It would be a year of prep together most of our efforts and energies into this particular outreach, right? We do this big outreach. We'd have like 20,000 students come from Madison and from around the area, Whitewater, all the other campuses. They'd all get to hear the gospel preached. A lot would come to know Jesus. And then we'd disciple them. Great, right? Well, <laughs> as we were doing some research asking our partners who had done this before how successful this was, we found out that they, 
that they saw less disciples the year of their outreach than they did the year before or the year after. They put all their effort and energy into that and they gave up their other ministries in order to build this, this big event, right? This flashy big event where this guy who's the leader of this ministry can get up and preach the gospel, another rock star. And, 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 it, and in the end, it didn't show that, you know, like they would say, look at all the people that made decisions for Christ. And I've shared this before, but the reality is like Billy Graham, when he used to be around, he used to do his outreaches, right? I've told you, what did they say? The statistics are that only one out of every 10 people that makes a commitment to Jesus will actually follow through with it, right? It's just the reality of how this is built. You know, it's emotional. It's, I don't know, anyway. So, I, you know, again, I, those things have their places in their good. They can make a difference in a person's life, right? But, I mean, that becomes, that becomes the image that everybody else bases. This is what church is supposed to be like, and it's a lie, right? And so I think that's what we're talking about here. So what is healthy church? I'm not going to read it through, but, I, the, um, but the passage I looked at earlier is the answer. It's 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Make every effort, right? For faith, goodness, knowledge. By the way, that's knowing kind of knowledge, not head knowledge, relational knowledge. Self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Those things should be key. And why? And Peter actually says it earlier. In First Peter 1, chapter 2, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Right? Yeah. Anyway, well, a little different kind of message for me, but may I pray for us? And then I don't know if there are any announcements, but if you have some, you can come up and give them, all right? So Lord, um, I, I thank you that you give us the opportunity um, to... Uh, <laughs> try to figure this out. I know we fail a lot in this, Lord. I know we struggle um, trying to find our identity in the wrong things, but I also know we see good success as well. And I know I, I want and we want our body to be healthy, um, uh, to, do this, to do this well, um, to make a difference, to, 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 uh, to focus on, on building one another up, right? In love and good deeds to to help us grow and become more like you so that even in our lives every day, not just when we're together, but especially when we're not, that our lives reflect you in a way that people will glorify you in the end. So, yeah, help us, Jesus, to become even more a church like that and thank you for the ways we already are. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.